welcome to Beyond Words Radio. I am Richard Cohn, publisher of Beyond Words Publishing and host for today's broadcast. I have the pleasure today of introducing you to an amazing man, Brian Smith. Brian invented the Ugg Boot Australia brand and brought that to America and created an amazing company and an amazing product. Brian, good to have you with me today. Thanks, Richard. Pleasure to be here. When when you first moved to the United States from Australia, did you expect Uggs to be such a major success? Well, um, yes and no. First of all, I didn't come to America to do Ugg. I came to America to find another business to take back to Australia because I had been in a chartered accountant. I graduated and quit the same day because I really didn't like accounting. And when I came to America, it was because I'd done a lot of meditation and, and thought, you know, all the best trends are coming out of California, like Levi jeans and waterbeds and all the surfing brands and everything. And I thought, I'm going to go to California. I'm going to find the next big thing and bring it back to Australia. So I didn't even have Ugg on my mind when I came to America. So because I was a surfer, I, I'd always dreamed of surfing Malibu. I, I arrived in L.A. and spent the first couple of months pretty much up at the beach at Malibu, surfing, looking around for the next big thing. And, and it wasn't until about three or four months had passed. It was October, November, and the, the water was getting chilly and... and uh, you know, the wind was getting cold, and I remember finishing up my surf and pulling on my sheepskin boots that I'd brought from Australia with me. And it struck me, I just got this massive dose of goosebumps. I thought, oh, my God, there are no sheepskin boots in America. And one in two Australians own some sort of sheepskin footwear. And that's when I had this eruption of... Of, you know, oh my God, I'm going to be an instant millionaire because, you know, I, you know, the population of America is 20 times the size of Australia and I just saw this incredible opportunity. So, so that's the answer. I did not expect it to be a success until I found that it wasn't here and then I thought I was going to be an instant millionaire. Did you, did you have any other thoughts of other products that you might do when you came to America? Uh, I, I, there was the sport of grass skiing that was sort of taking off in Australia and Europe, uh, and I, I thought that might be one of the things. But, it, you know, when the Ugbert idea hit, I, I, it was all, all my focus went to that. And, uh, you know, I, I did some research uh and, and, you know, visited a bunch of surf shops, uh, and we, you know, like, we got shut out of the shoe stores straight off because they couldn't understand California and sheepskin being in the same sentence. But, uh, I knew all the surfers from Malibu had been down to Australia and they'd all bought a bunch of Ugg boots back for their buddies. So I started off through the surf market and, um, just canvassed a bunch of the stores, you know, from, from L.A. down to San Diego, and they all thought, oh, my God, that's a fantastic idea if you bring those into America. You know, we, we all wear them and own them, and you're going to do fantastic. So I raised 
about $20,000 and bought 500 pairs to kick it off. And as soon as they arrived, I went back to those same surf shops who told me it was going to be fantastic. And they all said, oh, my God, Brian, you know, congratulations. But we couldn't sell them in our store. We, we just sell surfboards and trunks and flip-flops, and they're way too expensive for us. So the, the bottom line is that after, you know, a month of being on, on the you know, road visiting all my surf shop owners, uh, I, we tallied up the, the sales for the year. We shipped 28 pairs <laughs> out of 500. <laughs> so, so all of our thoughts of being instant millionaires were dashed, you know. <laughs> it was so, uh, so traumatic. But, uh, the, the evolution of it, you know, it was slow and steady and it became the, it became the topic of a book that I wrote called The Birth of a Brand. And the theme of the book is that you can't give birth to adults. You know, every business, every, every, pretty much every movement you see, whether it's a new movie or a sandwich shop or a golf course or something, it all starts with conception and the birth. You know, the, the, like me buying six pairs of samples from Australia was the birth of art because I, it was the first action that was taken. And then every business or movement just goes into this horrible infancy and it lies there and lies there forever and it doesn't seem to have any hope of success. And that's when most entrepreneurs give up because they, their, their brilliant idea is just not getting traction. But if you can hang in there through those infancy uh years then or, or period, then it starts to toddle and that's a great stage because your first customers are coming around and people are writing articles about you and that goes quickly into the youth phase where you've got consistent production and sales and marketing and accounting and billing and you can run a you know $20 million business in that youth phase, but if it's a really good product like UG was, it'll hit the teenage years and it's extremely dangerous, you know. You can, you can recall when you were a teenager, you wanted to be in every party in town. Well, it's the same urge in business. You want to be in every major trade show and every mass retailer, and it's really, really easy to strip out your your, your capital and, and go broke. So it's a dangerous phase, but eventually it becomes mature and uh, it becomes a real solid business. So it's a really good life cycle, and the, and the, the book is... Uh, pretty much a roadmap for entrepreneurs based on that theme and it, it just walks you how how long it takes to build a good solid business you know when i read your book the birth of a brand um, i was reminded of i think it's called like a classic hero's journey where yes where you start out and uh, you you meet challenges and uh Many people, when they start out, they those challenges bring up all the fears, and they uh, they stop their business. Yet, That's right. uh, yet you kept going. How how did you embrace your challenges? Well, I uh, I lived by this mantra that I read in another book on philosophy, which is that nearly always your most disappointing disappointments will become your greatest blessings. And I took that to heart early on, and, and, and I tied that up with another Napoleon Hill uh, quote from Think and Grow Rich, which was, always be prepared to go the extra mile. 
And so between those two thought patterns, I, whenever I hit an obstacle, it would be, it would be a challenge. And as every entrepreneur learns, you have to sort of pivot when you hit a wall and figure out how to overcome the challenge. And I just had a knack for doing that. And, and as that old statement goes, you know, every time I'd look back and think, you know, think of that disaster that happened, I'd be going, oh, my God, thank God that happened because now I wouldn't have this new system in place that's really, really working well. And that happened over and over and over again. And, and every entrepreneur, every person in business should, and even in just life in general, you can just overcome those obstacles by you know, finding a new way of looking at them. It's amazing how you look back and be appreciative of, of the obstacle happening in the first place. I remember... Um in our early years in publishing, uh, we had uh, a lot of debt and not a lot of income. And our uh, mm-hmm. attorney came to us and said, uh, I think it's crazy for you people to be in in the publishing business. You should file bankruptcy, and I want you to meet with a bankruptcy <laughs> attorney. And right. so I went, uh, went with my partner to the, the attorney, and the bankruptcy attorney said, um, I will need a $30,000 retainer, and you're right. going to have to bankrupt your family and everyone, your friends, everyone that loaned you money. And, and uh, I thanked him, and when I left, I turned to my partner, and I said, if we had $30,000, we, <laughs> we could probably almost get out of debt. I know. <laughs> so sometimes uh, <laughs> your greatest challenge becomes that opportunity where you can move forward. Mm-hmm. Yep, I think every entrepreneur can have a story like that. It's, uh, it's, it's unique. It, I also noticed in your book that you talk about uh, persistence and, and staying the course, sometimes even in the face of no evidence. Yes, well, I, I got a good story about that. Um, you know, after 28 pairs for the first year, that you that, that would be a good time to give up, right? But yes, I really, I really couldn't because I had 480 pairs left in my third bedroom and all my investors' money um, tied up there. So I started doing street, you know, street fairs and swap meets, and, <clears throat> and believe it or not, the, the best retail outlet I had was the back of my van at, at the parking lot at Malibu Beach. And uh, I used to go surfing in the morning, and, and then I had the, the back of the van full of product, and it, it became a really well-known little retail spot. People were coming because all their friends were selling, hey, go to that guy up in Malibu. And so that sustained me for, for you know, the, the rest of that uh, winter. But I only sold about $5,000 worth of product. So the next year I decided, okay, I'm going to advertise. So I, I hired two models. Uh, a guy and a girl and a photographer and we posed them on the beach at Wind and Sea uh, in La Jolla and had the perfect hair and perfect clothing and the perfect Ugg boots. You know, the major part of the photo was the Ugg boot uh, worn by the girl. And I ran those ads and the sales that year went to about $10,000. And I said, that's crazy. It should, should be way more than that. And so I got another summer job, and the following year I said, okay, I'm going to get better-looking models and a more expensive photographer. <laughs> and we posed them on the beach the same way, you know, the perfect hair and boots. And, and the sales went to like $20,000. And, and 
I couldn't believe, I couldn't understand what I'm doing wrong because I, I thought the sales should be way, way more than that. And I got another summer job, and then the, the, the following season I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to ask about my advertising. So I was having a, a beer with one of my surf shop retailers in South in, in Ocean Beach, uh, San Diego, and I was explaining this dilemma about the ads, and he said, oh, shut up, Brian, and he called out the back to four or five little 12, 13-year-old kids who, who would, you know, sweep out the shop. And he said, what do you guys think of Ugg boots? And every one of them just went, oh, man, those Uggs, they're so fake. Have you seen those models in the ads? They can't, sir. And instantly I realized I'm sending the wrong message to my target market because I, they there was so, they were so blunt about it, I, I, I saw the ads in a different light and they were just so fake and you know, composed. And so, again, I had to think laterally. You know, that was like another obstacle. You had to try and figure out. And so I called a buddy of mine who was running this young surfing league up in uh, Orange County for this school. And I said, Pete, do you have any young kids who are going to turn pro soon? And he gave me these two names, Mike Parsons and Ted Robertson. So... Uh, instead of posing them, uh, we, we just went surfing at Black's Beach in La Jolla and Trestles up in San Onofre, and I just sort of hung out with my own little Canon SureShot you know, camera and just took photos walking to the beach and back and you know, stuff on the beach. And so I ran an ad uh, this next season just showing them walking to and from the you know these surf spots and the sales went to $200,000. Wow. <laughs> and it was purely because I, I finally figured out that the way to get people to respond to an ad is to make them want to be in the ad. And I could have just imagine all these little kids from all across the country who uh, would die to be on that walk to Trestles or to Black's Beach with Mike Parsons, you know. And the authenticity came through, and that was something that changed my attitude towards sales and marketing and I eventually became a really, really good advertiser and marketer and that was what built the UGG brand into the millions while I owned it and then the billions uh, after I sold it because they stayed true to this authentic image. Yeah, I, That was something I, I was going to ask you too because you, in your book you talk about, in Birth of a Brand, you talk about authenticity Mm-hmm. And it, it's clear once you, in essence, you did a focus group in that surf shop when you had the little 13 year olds. Which is one of the best ways to learn whether know, a product is going to work or not. And then to have real surfers wearing the boots and just casually walking it. Uh, yeah. yeah. And the interesting thing in, in the ads that, that worked, the boots were like a quarter of an inch high uh, in the whole photo, full page photo, right? But in the ads that didn't work, the boot was like one third of the entire ad. And it, learned, it taught me that you don't ever advertise a photo of your product. You, you always advertise the benefit, the utility, how it's going to change your life, how it's going to make you feel. That you, you you try and hit them on emotional levels rather than a photo of the product, and I stuck with that for the entire you know, 18 years that I owned the UGG company, and uh, it 
you know, took it into a national awareness just purely by following that simple rule. That, that's a, a wonderful lesson. It's it's one I'm going to take to heart when I look at our next advertising campaign for the books mm. that we publish. <laughs> Good for you, yeah. Um, do you have, in the, the course of your life, uh, did you have a personal vision or a passion that drove you? Um, the the beautiful thing that I had, which is unique to this product and this business, is that I knew that half of the people in Australia owned a pair of sheepskin footwear. Mm. Right? So every time I'd get beaten down and told it was never going to work, and, and that happened a lot, and they're ugly, they'll never work. You know, we, we have snow and mud and slush where we are, so they'll never work, you know. I had a million objections to it, but I just kept thinking back, well, goddamn, one or two Australians, they must be good, so it's not the product's fault, it's my fault. Now, what am I doing wrong? And so I was always able to, no matter how low I got, um, because I did have a vision that, man, I want every single person in America to be wearing a pair of outfits. You know, that was my vision. But when I'd get beaten down, like I'd be at a trade show and, and no one would be coming by because they just couldn't understand what these sheepskin boots are doing in like a ski, ski and, you know, trade show. And I remember in frustration one day, there, there was this woman in the booth and she owned a bunch of shops back east and, uh, she was there telling me how they'll never work in her area because, you know, she gets too delicate and, and, and I, in frustration, I said, listen, ma'am, would you please take your shoe and sock off? Oh, no, I don't need to do that. Please, ma'am, just take your shoe and sock off. And I said, here, now try this on. And she put it on and went, oh my God, these are so comfortable. I could sell these as after ski boots. And she bought like 60 or 70 pairs, which at, at that time, our average sale was like 10 pairs to a store. She bought 60 or 70 pairs, and I, and I couldn't believe how we struck the gold mine. But even better, the lesson I learned from that was I never, ever sold a pair of Ugg boots after that. And I coached my, my sales staff to do the same. You never try and sell a pair of Ugg boots until they try one on. Right, and the, it was night and day. The sales, like we might get one out of twenty people in before that, and after we had them try the boots on beforehand, we were selling you know nineteen out of twenty customers. So it was all about that experiential feel. But the, you know, back to your point, um, the, you know, there were so many times when I was told it'll never work. You know, it, you know, you know I would be really, really down, but. I always came back to the fact that everyone in Australia wore them. What's the problem? Must be me. And then I sort of zeroed in on that uh, tactile approach to sales, which turned out to be the big turning point for the company. Wow. That that was a, a game changer, and it's like a light bulb went off. Yeah. And, and that's business, though. That's, that's like, you know... You have to just stick around and wait for the light bulbs because they're always there. You just gotta, you know, be, be, be on the path where you see them. You know. What led you to keeping the name brand of UGG, and where did it come from? Well, 
that's a good story. Nobody really knows who invented the, the, the word UG. Uh, there's a couple of old guys in Australia claim they invented it, but no, there's no proof. Um, it's just become a sort of a, a descriptive name for the product in Australia. And when I first started out in America, uh, you know, I told you I brought my sheepskin boots with me. And there were UGG boots, but I think the spelling was U-G-H on this brand. And in Australia, it was U-G or U-G-H or U-G-H-S. Or and, and so the brand was very generic, but... When I came to America, I decided, okay, I'm just going to pick UGG and register here in America because nobody had ever brought the boots in. And that was what I built the brand around. So the answer is that there is no meaning to it except that it's sort of descriptive of sheepskin boots. And, uh, you know, it, and a brand isn't really worth anything unless you spend a lot of money promoting it and making people aware of it. And so that's what I spent the next you know, 18 years doing was just building wow. a really good product around the brand. Wow. Well, we are going to pause for a, a quick break, Brian. Uh, and when okay. I return, when I return, uh, I'd like to uh, discuss a little more about uh, uh, perhaps the the lucky breaks that happen in life and and how, okay. the, and how the universe can guide us. The things that. Uh, seem to happen out of the blue that can really change the destiny of your life. Okay, well, I've got two really good stories. Um, one is, uh, you know, we, we were into the business about 15 years, and I wanted to really, you know, we, we were really big in surf, really big in ski and snowboard. Um, I figured out that the kids back east, um, you know, they don't read Surfer Magazine or Snowboard, but they all played hockey, so I found a way to get into the youth hockey market. And But all across the country, there were all these pockets of, of enthusiasts, but there was no really good image. So I decided, okay, I'm going to create casual comfort as the image of UGG, and I'm, I want to get this out to the, the whole country. And I thought the best way to do that is through PR, and I, I, I want to get on the, the front page of the USA Today lifestyle section. And... Uh, I knew I'd have to put a really good campaign together, so I hired a company in Boston, and we did this really great campaign, and, and you know had you know product sheets and all of the stuff you need for a press kit. And uh, I'd made an appointment with this girl Margaret in Chicago, who was the fashion editor for USA Today, and so we practiced our spiel all the way across you know New York, Boston, you know. Um, all the way across to Chicago, and uh, we arrived at five to three. And uh, Margaret came running out, going, "Oh, Brian, I'm so sorry. I've made a horrible mistake. I've double booked. I've only got five minutes, and I have to be on this conference call." And my heart sank because this presentation was like thirty, forty minutes long. And so, uh, as, as, remember, I've talked about pivoting before. Well, I, yes. I, I thought, okay, that presentation is not going to work. What can I do? And I, I instinctively reached down into my briefcase and I had this tatty old folder full of photographs of celebrities wearing Uggs. And I had, you know, Tom Petty, Neil Young, Sting, Patrick Swayze, you know, the, the Grumpy Old Men movie. Um, and, you know, I, I had one photo of 
Pamela Anderson on the beach in in a red swimsuit on the on the Baywatch set, and I quickly flicked by that because nobody wears boots that way, right? And I went to Heather Locklear, and and, and Margaret goes, but who is that? Who is that? So she pulled out this tabloid, you know, page with Pamela Anderson, and she wrote down the name of the photographer and the the uh, you know the magazine that it came from in England, and uh, she said, you know, do you have a press kit? Great, got to go. You know, like it was four minutes, and that's when I realized that this, you know, I spent sixty thousand dollars on this campaign, and it was just down the toilet. And next day, I was at the airport in Chicago, going back to San Diego, and I got USA Today, and I went to the lifestyle section, and there's front page this whole photograph of Pamela Anderson in the Ugg boots, and the next page was a hundred percent full of the whole shielding industry and you know the the history of Ugg and the history of sheepskin and the you know all the competitors which I wasn't really pleased with but she listed us as, as a huge category of up and coming product and by the time I got back to San Diego that afternoon I found out that the phone had not stopped ringing from the retailers wanting to know how they could get the product and from consumers all over the country saying, hey, where's a, where's a retailer near me? Right? So, <laughs> so that was, that was pure luck. Uh, although it was karmic luck, you know, I put out all the effort and I, you know, made my way to Chicago. So it wasn't just luck. It was, it was, it was a re- reward for the, you know, the, the effort I put out. The other one, though, was really um, where the company changed. It was the year I was selling the company. And um, I'd been selling for years uh, boots to, the, to all these different people in London at the request of this girl, Trudy. And it was a pain in the butt doing all these individual customs and freight forms and everything. But she was Trudy Styler, who's the wife of Sting. And we were you know, all part of that, so trying to be part of that celebrity thing. So... She called up one day and says, Brian, you know, I've got, you know, I've been to this seminar. It's changed my world. I need a huge favor. Do you have a pair of tall sand, and I think size 8, boots? must be perfect. And do you have a pen? Here's where to send them. And I said, yep, I'm ready. And she says, Oprah, care of Oprah Winfrey, Chicago, <laughs> you know. And we shipped boots out there. She immediately came back and ordered 20 pairs for all her staff. And then that set up, uh, you know, a year or two of, of set up to where we got onto Oprah's favorite things and Oprah's best picks for Christmas. You know, 20 minutes on national, international TV, uh, where there was nothing but Uggs. And this was when Oprah was at a very peak of popularity. So, you couldn't have paid in dollars for the amount of advertising we got on that. And that's what took Ugg from, you know, I, I, after that, you know, that was like 18 years into the business. I was pretty much national in the U.S., but that was the break that took us international. And it's what tracked Ugg to become a billion-dollar brand rather than a million-dollar brand. Wow. So it's, it's almost like, um, I mean, some people would say, and I, and I think you do say this in your book, that when the universe kicks in and, and overrides one's own limiting beliefs, uh, magical, amazing things can happen. Oh, I, I'd love to tell you a story about that, but I, how long do we have till the, till the break? Well, we can uh, it's probably 
Okay, uh, well, let's let's start off, and if we break, I'll, I'll finish up afterwards. Yeah. The universe, the universe is absolutely perfect, right? Everything you could possibly want already exists in the universe, right? And bring that back to planet Earth, everything you could possibly want on this planet already exists. And I'll give you an example. Of, of, there's a great statement that, that's thousands of years old that says, once you start out on a path, the universe will conspire to work with you. And here's the way I explain that. Richard, when's the last time you saw an ad for a refrigerator? Exactly. You probably, you probably don't remember, right? I don't, I don't remember. And it... here's, here's the way the universe works. If you needed a refrigerator this weekend, you would start seeing evidence of that refrigerator everywhere. You would be driving down the street, you'd see appliance stores, right? Which you, 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 you drive by every day of your life, but you'd never see them until you need to see it, right? Uh, you will go to Starbucks and someone will leave the classified ads open and there's ads for refrigerators. You'd be online and some, somehow refrigerators would, would start to appear. And this is how that law of the universe works. Uh, if you're sitting still watching TV, you'll no, see no signs whatsoever from the universe. But the minute you start out on a path, hey, I'm, I think I'll write a book. Hey, I think I'll try and put this product online. Hey, I think I'll try and start this. The minute you start out on that path, you'll start to see uh, evidence of, oh, my God, I could use that in my business. Or, oh, look at this, somebody's talking about that. They know somebody. I could use that person in my business. And so suddenly everything that already exists in the universe starts making its way towards you. And there's all these, you know, classes out there now about the law of attraction well, this is how the law of attraction works. It never comes to you unless you start to focus in on it. And the minute you do start to focus, all of this ancillary stuff that is associated with your your vision starts to fall into place and you become aware of it. It's always been there. You've never seen it. But the minute you start to focus, it suddenly all starts to form up in, in front of you. So that's the way I try and explain the, the law of attraction and how the universe does really conspire to work with you. And I've seen that over and over and over again in, in my business. It, it makes total sense. I, I know um, one of the ways that I focus on what I want to have and what I want to create in our company uh, during a, a year is to do a vision board. And uh -huh. I'll put on the vision board pictures of uh, things that I would like to see happen. And uh, we we recently had a children's book that um, we thought would make a great movie. And so I, I put a picture uh, of myself holding an Oscar. Uh, and, <laughs> <I love> it. <laughs> and under it I put uh, Disney loves Stella and the Timekeepers. And, uh -huh. uh, and so... We actually now have a, a Hollywood producer who is uh, presenting that book to Disney, and uh, it it has a chance yep. of being on Disney Plus. But without yep, the with without the focus, it certainly would not have happened. Exactly. If you hadn't put on the vision board, you, you, you know that producer would have passed you by. Would, wouldn't wouldn't know that you wanted to do it. It, yeah, a vision board is a powerful tool, and, and yeah. just like you said, it it it, 
you know, if you put a picture of a red Porsche on your vision board, <laughs> that's everywhere you go, you're going to be seeing them on the road. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, and eventually you'll sit in one, and eventually you'll lease one. Yeah, that's how it works. My father had an expression, Brian. He said, partners are made for dancing. And uh, I wonder, over the course of your business career, uh, there were moments where you had partners, and I want to know what your experience was like with partners. Yes, well, that's that's probably the the hardest part of uh, running any business is is financing it, and really the you know you, when I started I did it from the beach. Uh, I had a buddy, uh, Doug. We were going to do it together, but after selling twenty eight pairs the first year, we, you know, we realized that wasn't going to happen. So he got another job and I had it back to myself. But the need for partners came from me when I needed uh, extra financing to buy product. And uh, I I really didn't understand finance. The, the, the one regret I have in my business, even though I was a chartered accountant when I started, I didn't understand the way money worked, and especially in forecasting. And so I was bringing in partners, you know, for $20,000, uh, and then we'd grow, 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 and then they couldn't take on the responsibility of, uh, you know, buying $100,000 worth of products, so I'd have to buy them out and bring in a bigger investor, and then that investor couldn't handle, you know, the, the growth uh, when we needed $500,000 worth of products, so I had to buy him out and bring in bigger investors. So. As each investor comes in, you know, they have their own agenda, and basically it is how how quickly can I get my money out with a profit? Whereas in my mindset, I was, well, I want your money in here forever so that we can keep growing, you know? Yes. And so you always have a difference. doesn't matter, um, you know, you, 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 your father has made that quote, brilliant statement because partners – don't always think the way you do, right? If you're yeah. trying to build a business, you, you your attitude is, well, they should be grateful to be in my team because we're going to change the world. But they're not seeing it that way. They're saying, well, my money's at risk. You know, how do I get out of this and, you know, make a profit? Uh, and so you've got two divergent um, energies going within a company. Now, sometimes you get, like, I, I, I am in other companies with other investors, and we're all getting on great, and we all. But, but it's because we all have the same vision. It's just that when the visions start to digress, or you outstrip one's ability to keep participating, then it gets really, really tough. And um, so, yeah, partners quite often are inevitable, especially if you're starting to grow and you have a really successful business. And partners can come in the way of investment bankers or, you know, um, angel investors or all different types of investors, and they're always going to bring another dynamic that you can't control. And so it's a, I would say to anyone thinking of growing their business, you know, hey, yes, you probably have to do it, but if you can make sure that your visions are aligned, the vision is much more important than the money. The dollars can come from many places, but the vision, you have to be really, really astute to make sure that you've got the best chance of being in the same vision. Thank you so much, Brian. I, uh, talking about having a unified vision, an aligned vision, 
uh, as one of the more important things in, in life and in business. And I wanted to ask Brian, um, what was the hardest decision, Brian, that you had to make as an entrepreneur? If you can share that with our audience. Sure, sure. Um, well, I know what it is. It's difficult to talk about even today. Um, we were just talking about bringing in investors. So I had just brought in three new guys uh, and brought out the previous investor, and they were from Anaheim, and the deal was that they were going to run the, the operations side of the business, and I was going to be the salesman on the outside. And uh, we were all going to own the company 25% each, which was the best deal I could do at the time. And there were two provisors. One, I'd be the outside salesman. And the second one is that I didn't actually get my stock certificate issued until I finished this trademark lawsuit uh, that I had going on with a company called UGHS. So I knew I'd win that. So we all signed on and, and moved everything up to Anaheim. And after we were settled in there, I went out on the road. And the very first customer I went down to was uh, Huntington Circumsport and a friend Dave there. And, and I walked in and he goes, Hey, Brian, I heard you sold the company. I went, what? He said, yeah, I called an order in this morning. They said, you don't own the company anymore. I said, you're kidding me. You know, so I couldn't wait. I got to the Shell gas station next door afterwards, and I called up Anaheim and said, Neil, what are you telling people? He says, what, what do you mean? I said, you're telling them I don't own the company. He said, well, you don't. You know, you don't get your stock until... And I said, yes, yes, I do. You're my three new partners, you know. And I drove back to San Diego and I pulled out the contract and I realized, oh, my God, I don't own the company anymore. Wow. And and that was, like, devastating. I went into this depression for, like, three days. And I, I couldn't think a rational thought because, you know, I'd seen myself as the CEO of this big international company one day and now I didn't even own it. And I ended up, after about the third night of just moping around the house, I... I I was watching TV with my wife, and I clicked the show up, and I rolled over on my stomach and got up, got up on my hands and knees to walk to the bedroom, or you know, crawl to the bedroom. And my wife, who's really quiet, she just looked at me and yelled, you, you get up now and walk to bed like a man. And she shocked me out of this <laughs> depression, and I, and I started to realize, oh, my God, there's so much more to life than this crappy little sheepskin company, you know? So... Uh, the next day I got back into my meditation and got positive again, and, and I had to really start thinking, okay, what will I do? Will I be a real estate guy? No. Business broker, maybe. You know, accountant, never. And then I got these goosebumps again, and I thought, you know, selling. I've come to love sales, so what can I sell? And then I thought, you know, Ugg boots. I love Uggs. I want to get a pair on every single person in America. So I made the decision to eat humble pie, and I went back to Anaheim, and I told the guys, look, I may never own this company, but I'm going to do my dandest to get a pair of Ugg boots on every American. And that then led into a you know, three- or four-year period where I was on the road continually, you know, and loved it. I, and I was making money. I was getting ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 a month in commission checks for, you know, four, five or six months of the year, and... You know, and that was, uh, you know, the first real money I ever had in my life. And it was amazing that um, after five years, uh, this freakish 
other two people out and as part of, you know, he said, come on in, Brian, we're going to issue you stock. And so we took out life insurance policies on each other and bought new company cars and everything was positive. And then just before we were to sign over the stock, uh, he was in a uh, motorcycle race and he had a heart attack and died. And oh my goodness. Yeah, and, and like six months later, the insurance policy paid out and it was just enough money for me to buy the business 100% back from his widow because she'd never stepped foot inside the business. And so I was able to solve her ability to, to cash out of the company and it, it got me 100% of the company back. So there's another classic example of your greatest disappointments becoming your greatest blessing. Wow. You know, it was just freakish. But that, um, for sure, going back and eating humble pie was probably the hardest decision I made, but it was by far the best and most important decision I made in the whole company. You talk about, um, and I think this ties into that, uh, the importance as a business owner of keeping things in writing. Yeah, 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 that... In the early days, there was so much, you know, do this, do that, and if it didn't happen, there was, well, you didn't tell me, you know, and I understood something different. So I learned quite early on to put things in writing, and, and this happened right about the time it was like the mid-90s, and the uh, emails, first emails were just happening on, on the personal computers in the office, and Thank God for emails now because everybody communicates by email and there's a trail of thought uh, goes back and you can figure out who said what, when, and there's a date stamp and it's phenomenal now for holding people accountable. And it, it's, uh, but more than holding people accountable, it makes sure that if it's in writing, everybody's on the same page because, you know, if you read it, you have to really understand it. And there's no excuse for saying, well, I didn't know, or you told me something different. So, so yeah, putting things in writing is uh, really important, and especially if it's uh, an understanding for some future event, because, you know, in the future when you finally get down to negotiate it, things change, <laughs> and it's quite, quite often to forget what you, what you were dealing with when you made the deal. Uh, six months later when the, you know, all, the, all the elements have changed. So that writing is really important. You had also in your book, you, you talk about listening to an inner wisdom, a, a calling or a, a, right. off, a little voice that kind of guides you. Um, would you share with our listeners what that is for you? Yes, yeah, for sure. For, for me, it always comes in the form of goosebumps. Like, like when I quit being an accountant and meditated on what will I do, I, I got massive goosebumps when I thought, America, everything's coming out of America, right? And so I arrived in, in the U.S. and I rented a house in Melbourne, or in Santa Monica there, and uh, was looking for the next big thing. The next big thing was goosebumps on when I was on the beach thinking, oh my God, there's no sheepskin boots in America. That was a very internal, you know, moment. Um, there were other times when, um, you know, even when I'd lost control of the company, that little story I just told, it was, you know, what will I do with my life? That was a goosebump moment because I thought sales, I love sales. And, and, that, and so what I've come to believe is that, that we all have this 
little fragment or spark of God in us. You know, God's not out at the end of the universe somewhere way away. It's a fragment of God in every one of us. And it has a, a, a sort of mission for us to do in our lives, and it's all the time trying to guide us. And when we can slow down and, and connect with that inner feeling, that inner, and it is just a feeling uh, of right and wrong, when you can connect with that, it always helps make the decisions uh, to go forward on much easier for me. And I've found that that uh, the goosebumps are, are, you know, when I when I speak from stage, which I do a lot of, uh, I always ask the audience, you know, who's, who's had goosebumps? And I'd say 99% of people put their hand up, and I, and I challenge them that next time you get goosebumps, just stop and think if you've just made some sort of decision that's going to affect the way you move forward in life. And it doesn't have to be in business. It can be in personal relationships. It can be, you know, with children, anything like that. But always when I get the goosebumps, I'm reminded that there is a much bigger uh, wisdom than my brain. And it's, it, it lives inside of me. And any time I can tap into it, I get a, another nudge forward. Wow. Well, this is, this is a wonderful way to wrap up, uh, our, our discussion today, Brian, because our listening audience can also watch now for their, for those goosebumps in their lives. Yeah. And, uh, thank you so much, uh, Brian, for being our guest today. Um, Brian's book, The Birth of a Brand, is a wonderful, wonderful read, whether you're an entrepreneur or really doing almost anything in life. Thank you, Brian, for being with us today. Hey, Richard, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it.